Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Com and definitely check out those shows as well. David Ambrose is the author of A Place Called Home, a memoir, which if you follow me on Instagram, you will see that I selected as my book of the year, which I wasn't even going to do, but I loved it so much that I was trying to make a statement and say, literally, this is the best book I read this year. It's the most inspiring, amazing story, and you really all have to read it. It is so good. I could not put it down. David's life has been just a huge story of resilience, overcoming and making a difference and the power of being a kind person. And oh my gosh, it's changed my life. Um, So anyway, more about him. David is a national poverty and child welfare expert and advocate. 
He was recognized by President Obama as an American champion of change. He currently serves as the head of Community Engagement West for Amazon, coordinating with nonprofits and community leaders for social good. Previously, he led corporate social responsibility for Walt Disney Television and served as the president of the Los Angeles City Planning Commission and as a California Child Welfare Council member. After growing up homeless and then in foster care, he graduated from Vassar and later from UCLA School of Law. He is a foster dad and lives in Los Angeles, California. You literally all have to go read this book. You'll hear me just like swoon over David and his story, but um, I was even inspired to donate significantly to Together We Rise to help foster youth. Um, And if you are so moved, it's called Together We Rise, and you can join me in doing that. But listen to the podcast. You'll see why he's so wonderful. And then please go buy the book, read the book, really read it. It took me one day. I just like stopped everything else because I was so um, immersed. I hope you feel the same way. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss A Place Called Home, a memoir. Thank you so much. <laughs> As you know, I've been like stalking you, I feel like, on my DMs because I, <laughs> I read your whole book. I had started it, of course, before, but I finally had time to read the whole thing and could not put it down. Finished it in one day. It's amazing. Oh. Your story is amazing. Your writing is amazing. The whole thing. I I, I just, I I'm, my hat's off to you. It's Thank amazing. You. Well, very grateful. And I'm also want to hug you for reading it all in one day. I think it's a, it's a, it's a lot. And uh, a lot of folks have expressed similarly, but I know that it's a lot to get through. There's a lot of uh, just real experiences that I had that have been daunting for folks to read through, not just because they had the same thing, but it's like related to their own life. So Thank you for spending the time with little David Ambrose. Yes, that was my Thanksgiving. In fact, my my brother was a little annoyed <laughs> at the end. He's like, you were in a book all day again. Like, come on. I was like, no, it was just such a good book. I was like, <laughs> Is I didn't anyone wanna... surprised? Have they... Do they know you? Come on. They know me. I know. I know. I was like, I was, I was in the room where the football was going on. I just, you know, I don't want to watch oh football. Gosh. I want to read, you know, it was nothing personal, <laughs> but it was so fitting to read on Thanksgiving. And it actually, it, it helped, not helped, but it gave so much more meaning to the day and the sense of family and what mm-hmm. you went through and making sure, I mean, we all say, oh, we're so grateful, blah, blah, blah. But hearing your story from start to finish and what you went through and your search for family and what you, the, the bad lottery card you were dealt in your yeah. life basically and how you've overcome everything was like the perfect thing. So, okay, I'll stop like fawning, but why don't you talk, why don't you tell <laughs> listeners a little about what your memoir is really about and why you decided to share your very, very personal story. And as you said, some very painful moments with the rest of us. Yeah. You know, my story began 40 plus years ago in New York City. I was uh, born into homelessness. A lot of folks have asked me kind of about the before time. And I don't have a before time. I, I never remember a place where we live, a place we would call home. We constantly were moving from my earliest memory, living in the nooks and crannies of New York City and then other places ultimately. And it was about survival. You know, it was about where the next meal is coming from. It was about what violence is going on around us. It was in the midst of a city that was grappling with an AIDS epidemic that I didn't understand. And we were going from shelter to train station to park and around and around. You know, I had a brother and a sister. I have a brother and a sister, so very close with, and a mom who was cursed with a mental illness. 
And I actually start the book with a dedication to my mom. And I think as you read, I, I love her very much. In fact, I'm actually her caregiver today, all these years later. And I start the dedication to my mom because one of the messages in the book I hope people get is how painful it is to lose a family member to mental health. That so many people in our country are robbed because of this, this criminal called mental health. And we don't talk about it. And we don't support families that are grappling with someone that might have some challenges. So my mom gets the first uh, page of the book. It's dedicated to my mom who taught me to conquer one impossible thing at a time and to forgive. We went through that whole cycle of poverty and then ultimately ended up in foster care. And I say to folks, and I, I mean this, is that I learned when I went into foster care that hell had a basement. And what I experienced there, I only talk about a few of the foster homes. And other than one wonderful foster family, I had a really negative experience for many reasons. But again, I, I hope folks don't walk away condemning social workers or foster parents. I hope what they realize is, what have we individually done to support foster kids and these people that are actually opening up their homes, imperfect as they are? So we went, I went through foster care, separated from my siblings, and ultimately committed a little bit of fraud and got a grant to study in Spain, where I really began the process of rebuilding a human out of, out of the pieces of almost 18 years of violence and poverty. Oh my goodness. Do you feel that your mother's mental illness was something that with the right treatment and medication, she could have overcome? Like you say, you're her caregiver now. And I really mm. dying for like a yes to this book, but like, yeah. is there an alternate world where you feel like had she just been on the right meds or had she just been in a facility, the abuse and the horrifying events that she inflicted upon yeah. your siblings would be remedied? Like, was that a possibility? So, you know, uh, two thirds of the kids entering foster care are there because of neglect, which is a euphemism for poverty. So we're, we're breaking up families because people missed a rent check or can't provide food. More than half the schools in the country provide free lunch to the majority of their students, which means their parents aren't eating. So my mom is not one of those two thirds that are entering because of neglect. We were in the system because we desperately needed to be at her custody. Her mental health issues are treatable. However, it doesn't mean that she's going to be quote unquote normal. She can never parent. She should never have parented. And that will just be the rest of her life. And, and from her earliest teenage years, as I understand it, was her situation she was in. However, what she did to us and what she what we survived can't compare in my mind to the jail that she's in. My mom is in a prison of delusions and has been since she was a child. And I can't imagine what it's like to live like that, constantly fearful, constantly. So her illness, while we can mitigate it with medication and she's stable now and has housing, will never be quote unquote cured. It can be, it can be treated, it can be mitigated. And my mom can live a, a decent humane life, not devolving on the streets of the city, afraid of shadows. And that is the best we can hope for. And that's what I'm very proud and, and uh, uh, humbled to have the responsibility to do for my mom. I mean, the empathy that you're showing, like this could have gone in so many ways. Like to say, mm. I find it hard to believe there could be anything worse than some of the things that you endured and to say that it would be worse for her, even though she inflicted it, is just the most sort of magnanimous act of generosity of spirit, really, to even say. Well, you know? I mean, <laughs> uh, thank you. And 
you, I got a little chills. It's hard, you know, when people hurt you, it's really hard. But the thing I've always been able to do, and it's like yoga, you have to practice it. And I'm speaking probably to a bunch of moms. It's my mother. And my mom, if she had cancer, we wouldn't condemn her. We wouldn't. We would love her. We would put ourselves in a color and march. But because of what she has, she has certain manifestations. She has certain outbursts. She has certain violences. And it doesn't mean I, I can be okay with that, like the, the physical pain, the near-death experiences. But it's my mom. And I don't want my mom suffering. And I, I choose not to be mad at my mom because of this illness she has. And it's something I have to visit. And my siblings aren't the same. All of us have different... Um, resolutions with her. And I am much more involved in her life than my siblings are. And that's fine. That's my choice. But there's so many kids that have parents with mental health issues and we just, they just suffer. And I want people to see a different route. I want people to have empathy towards these women like my mom who are poor and suffering and not condemn her. Um. I mean, I think one of the many things you did so well is point out in a very sort of analytical way, as you describe your own emotional journey, some of the barriers and systemic issues that are facing people in poverty, people with in foster care, all of these things, including something like not only mental health treatment, but even health care for kids, even your teeth, yeah. even with your teeth. Oh my gosh. You know, all these, the basic things that you're like, well, yeah. here, here are the 8 million reasons why this is not happening and that's not happening. And here's what happens as a result of that. And, you know, what you gently do at the end of every chapter almost is say like, okay, we are all culpable here. Like, this is not the fault of this one family. This is our system letting this happen. And everyone reading this, everyone is a part of this. It is not... Yeah just the perpetrators. Like talk a little about that. I got chills again. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful to be seen and to have someone understand what I was trying to do, which is, this is not a bucket of things that happened to me, nor am I throwing stones at people that wronged me. It's not what this is about. It's not what my life's about. I think of poverty as women's work, not because I think it should be, but because that's what our society has done. We've, the majority of people suffering in poverty that have children are women and moms. And that system that we have, we need an army of women, probably, and their allies to fix it. Because people like my mom and without mental health issues are put through the grinder. We had to have an address in order to apply for rental assistance. We had to have an address to receive food stamps. We didn't have any of those things. It's insane. And I remember I had this analogy in my mind kind of as I was growing up. It's like the the families are living in poverty and in the water and they're drowning and this lifeboat comes along and this person reaches out and pulls the person out of the the water and the and the the woman and the children go <gasps> and they breathe in deeply. They're like, thank you. And then the program drops them. <laughs> but don't worry, there's another program in the boat that's going to lift them out for two minutes. What if we pulled the person out of the water and put them in the damn boat? Humans are messy. There's not a solution. So we need a, a systematic approach to lift people out of poverty. But here's the kicker. We're doing it. In my lifetime, we've halved the number of kids living in poverty. If we constantly scream fire, no one wants to go into that building. We have to actually pay people to go into burning buildings. The public needs to understand we're winning. We just have to work harder and faster because the kids need us to. 
So I think poverty programs, imperfect as they are, we have to stop denigrating government. We are the government. I am here today because of imperfect food stamps, imperfect rental assistance, imperfect violence mitigation programs, imperfect schools, and yet here I am. I think we have to honor that and make them work harder and better. And we can do that. I read the other day, uh, and it goes to your earlier question, why did I write this? There are 118,000 homeless children in New York City. Yes, that's right. (laughs) People are like, no, 118,000. Think about the town you grew up in and imagine they're all children. We have to work harder, better, and faster, but we're doing it. And I'm very optimistic we can do it. We have to design systems that embrace messiness. I worked on extending foster care to 21 because who is truly independent at 18? Who's independent at 30? So we're, we're making progress. And I'm very, very bullish on our, our capability as a people. We... I think Americans are inherently good. I mean, we, I just, I fundamentally believe that despite everything. And we just have to tap into that well of goodness to motivate our elected people to work harder and faster, to lift people like my family up, to support good systems that, that don't abuse kids. And we can do it. Do you think there's, so you, you thought through the whole system and obviously you become an advocate mm-hmm. for it and you, we share, we, we get to walk through the, the journey and you're the one, where is it in New Jersey or somewhere <laughs> where you took the trade and now sat there and you came up with all these yeah. brilliant ways of, you know, can you give foster parents pensions and like, let's incent, let's give incentives yeah. for people to do this in another way. Like, let's see what we can do. And you've, you've rethought the system from the inside out and you are the perfect person, right? To be the, the, the change maker in this area. Is there another, is there like a privatized foster care system? Is there something else other than, because I feel like one of the messages at the end is make sure to elect the right people to the positions who can make, who can affect these changes. And, you know, a lot goes into each candidate. Like, can we, is it all on them? Like what else can we as citizens do to help like I'm sitting here in New York wow. City and I'm like 118,000 kids are outside the window. Like what what can we do today to help? Yeah. You know, and there are so many different nonprofits and organizations helping, but like where if you if there was someone some way to have been helped either systemically yeah. individually, where you know, and what can people listening do? That was a lot. That's, that, that's the most important question. And first, read the afterword as you, you're referencing. That's like a, a very mapped out yep. approach to how we can uh, fix it. First and foremost, what I ask folks to do is close their eyes and imagine putting their own child into foster care. And what does that system look like? That is what we need to build. We don't need to fix this or tweak that or blah, blah, blah. If we don't have that, that's the problem. And that's why we have the, the system and the outcomes we have today. So if you're always wondering out there, what do we do? Constantly put yourselves in that moment where I have to put the most precious thing to me in the custody of the state. What, who's in charge? What are they doing? What do the frontline workers look like? What are they acting like? What are their incentives? And if we don't have that, you need to constantly be steering the ship towards it. And that steering is going to depend on your resources, both economic and time and, and capacity and whatever measurement. So I don't ask everyone to help every single homeless person off the street. That's just not realistic. In fact, it, it'll do the opposite. It'll make you jaded. Instead of starting every sentence, as we often do as people, is I can't because. We have to reorient. We are a country that sent a person to the moon. 
And now we are proud when we fill a pothole. We shouldn't be proud of that. We should get back to that energy as a country and as a people where we can send people to other planets. Okay, great. What does that mean in, in physical reality? It's not enough once every couple of years to vote. It's just not enough. It does not this or a democracy or a republic make. We have to be engaged as citizens. And I love your pod, especially as moms. <laughs> you know, every time I watch an election, they're always talking about the moms. You know, where are the moms? Where are the suburban moms? Where are the moms? And they've, they've evolved, right? Like soccer moms, this mom, Latina moms, like they're always, it's, but it's always moms because it's the beating heart of our country. And I think constantly about how do I reach these people that are like my mom, you know, loved us perfectly, but loved us because that empathy is what we need, a tsunami of it into our politics. Not since 1999 has a presidential debate brought up child poverty. Every single debate has talked about coal miners, which we should talk about. There's a couple thousand of them. There are 8.4 million children in America living in poverty. 8.4. Why don't we talk about it? Well, who's going to start that conversation? But people that are parents, moms. We have to ask our elected leaders, every school board meeting, I want a mom to go there and be like, how are you helping homeless children? Do you have a food bank there? For kids, do you have a clothing closet? How do you how do you integrate a kid that's from foster care that's just popped into the school? Are they allowed to play sports? Do they need a uh, do they need fees? I'll, I'll raise money for that. Constantly, if that's your capability, ask that question. Maybe you're married to an elected. Maybe you aren't elected. Constantly bring this stuff up, right? Because let's women are in office. Women have power. Women are moms. We can do this. We can integrate this population in our hearts and minds. Children, we should be constantly talking about them, but we don't. People know every single uh, member of the Supreme Court. How many of us know our school boards? When I think about equity, when I think about the murder of George Floyd, no one can name a local Superior Court judge, but they're the ones who convict young boys of color. But we know and we fetishize politics in DC, why don't we look local and see what we can do as individuals? If you walk by a homeless person and you think, I can't because fine, I get it. I do that too. But the pivot, the fundamental change, the moonshot for children in poverty is to then switch and go, what can I do? And for each of us, that's going to be different. I have a afterward in my book, it's a, it's a policy document. It's a love letter. It's very simply written, trying to get folks to, to, focus on foster care as a fulcrum point where we can change things and intervene. But what I hope we do is reorient ourselves to be a country that sends people to the moon is a country that wants to end child poverty because we must. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery. Perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, you need to run for president. That's my why why would you not do that? Like you're the perfect like this is like so many people are so negative. There's so much divisive chatter. Everything yeah. is like what we can't do and it all seems so dire and terrible. And here you are, you're like, I have faith. I'm like, really? You're the one? <laughs> yes. I do. I have like endless faith. Like I I'm sitting here in my home. I own my home. I own my home, folks. Like I was the president of the planning commission of Los Angeles. And I remember when the mayor appointed me, which is the person who oversees real estate and all sorts of things. And the mayor, Mayor Garcetti appointed me. And I'm like, mayor, like, are you sure? And he's like, you're absolutely the right person to do this. And I sat up there for seven and a half years overseeing real estate construction, home development, all this stuff, cannabis, home sharing. And I remember sitting up there all the time being like, I had a little bit of the imposter syndrome. And I just thought about the four-year-old boy living in Grand Central or, or in the nooks and crannies of the city. And I'm like, I'm going to imbue everything that I do and remember. And this one guy I got up there, I remember he was arguing against a, uh, a shelter for women and children. He's a member of the public, came to testify. And he said, if, if these women can't handle their kids, they should have had abortions. And I'm like... I'm going to get emotional now. Like I'm dying because there's these women from the shelter that are sitting in the front row that are having to hear this vitriol, this hate, which is what our public debate has devolved into. And I did a point of order and I interrupted him and I just said, Hey, if you're trying to convince me to vote against a shelter for women and children by saying my mom should have aborted me and my siblings, you're not going to get my vote. We need an army of people. In what other country would I even be alive? What other time would I be alive? Never mind having one of the most powerful positions to shut that down, to vote for that project. And I am so bullish that we can do more. We've had the number of kids in poverty, folks. Let's do that again every two years until it's zero. We can do it. Yes. Um, I know I've been talking a lot about what we can take away from the book and I'm not showing as much yeah. in the book because I feel like it's so important for people to hear what you have to say having gone having like you know oh. gone through all of what you went through you know 
just by reading. You know, there's also this whole element of of you know, the sexuality discrimination that you went through and having so many people yeah. try to change you and and you're having to come to terms with that and not feeling like there is a, a home for you yeah. sort of within the system. Talk talk about that a little. I, uh, <laughs> David is, uh, is showing us a, a Mickey Mouse hat with rainbow ears. That moment, uh, by the way, the end of the chapter about Disney World, I literally like closed the book for a minute and I was like, I have chills up and down my body. This is like the moment. I read it out loud. I read that section out loud to my husband. I was like, listen to this. Anyway. Well, I want to talk about Disney, but I also want to talk about the fact that your bookshelf is rainbow, which I love. <laughs> you know, my lessons about my sexual orientation began as a child. I was in New York City and there's... And I didn't understand it, but I sort of understood it. Was the... All around me were young men dying of AIDS. They were in the shelters. They were on the streets. And the lesson was profoundly clear. And I was a child. I didn't understand it exactly, but I sort of understood as kids do these things, things in general, is that this is wrong. I am wrong there's something wrong with me and this is what's going to happen. And then, you know, in most states, it was illegal for me to even have consensual sex until I was in my 30s. When I went into foster care, I was diagnosed with something at the time. It's still in the DSM, but it's, it's differently applied. It's called gender identification disorder. And through active therapy, malpractice, I would say, and physical and other violence throughout my time, except for Holly and Steve, my foster parents, folks tried to make me less gay. <laughs> I could just tell the listeners that I am a committed homosexual. I'm very happy, but it was violent and painful. But, you know, just like with my mom, I think about my life and I don't need to be religious or, or for or against religion to believe that I, I can't help but think that my life was what it was to make me a tool for good. And one of the goods that I feel uh, that I'm proudest of in my life is I worked very very much for a very long time to outlaw the curing of gay kids in foster care in our country. And it took until President Obama's second term, but we did it. And I'm very proud to have been part of that and a leader in that movement with Child Welfare League of America and Lambda Legal and others. But if I hadn't had that experience, it wouldn't have lit that fire. Kids today may have still been experiencing some of that horror. So I'm very proud of that that work. But that's what I've tried to do with all of these things is say, okay, what can I do with this? What should we do? How can I be part of the solution? How can I stop throwing stones? Because we live in a place where we can actually make the change we want to see. And it took decades. And that was so hard because I knew that every single day kids were going through reparative therapy. I knew about the violence. I knew. I knew exactly what they were going through. And it took me decades to deal with it, which is part of the reason you asked first, why did I write the book? Many reasons, one of which was the shame I had for all of the things done to me, all of the things I survived. I was just mortified that if people knew. And I was just done. I reached my mid-30s and I was like, you know, <laughs> I got to let this shit go. I got to move forward. I got to release this ballast that's holding me back and, and let the wind in my sail take me even farther. And part of it was... You know, we're still being debated today, aren't we? You know, our civil rights are in jeopardy. The Senate is hopefully going to vote in this lame duck session whether or not I can have a relationship that's recognized by the state. The work is not done, but I'm very proud that I took all this horror and did something with it. And my only regret is it took, it took very long time. 
Oh, it didn't take a long time. You're doing such a good job. It's superhuman what you're doing. It. I literally am sitting here listening to you, being like, "Look at all this love in his heart." I mean, you could. It's 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 so unlikely to have come out of what you went through in this position of of kindness and help. And you know, I know this is what you were like all along, but still, like to not have been robbed of this, your fundamental goodness as a person is is amazing. And it's not like it's, I mean, you're doing it every day. I mean, it's amazing. Oh, it's amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, the work continues. I'm working right now on a project. So a third of the homeless in LA, in most cities, actually, in the country, uh, coastal cities, are former foster kids. A third. We're emancipating kids at 18 to homelessness. And so I'm working on a project to build a dorm at a community college to emancipate them into two-year vocational or transfer. And we own the land. We have a vocational crisis in the country. These kids are our children as a people. And these are our institutions. We can do this. And that's how I feel so much about all these issues is somehow we've learned, we have this learned indifference or benign neglect, except it's not benign. We are neglecting the public square. And if I don't channel all this stuff into something, I think I would lose my mind. I think I would be hard and grumpy. And and I don't know. I I always thought of happiness as like a peak. You kind of get to the peak and then you have to fall, you know, you come down and you hopefully get to it again. I'm at a plateau. I'm like chillaxing at the top. I'm super happy. I constantly am like, okay, what can we do? What do I do? And I relax. I bake bread. I'm I'm literally wearing Lululemon pants with a decent shirt. Like I, I have a good life, but if if we kind of renew that faith in each other, it makes us richer. I am happier for it. Like I meet the most interesting people. I advance my career. I I have such weird ass adventures. Like who gets recognized by the president of the United States? Like President Obama. Who do you respect more than President Obama? These things are meaningful and they're seen, and we could, we should all be doing more of them. And I kind of love that I've had this Forrest Gump life of mine that's let me have these experiences believe it or like, not <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like your book needs to be a movie is it being is it good i mean i know it would be hard to watch but i feel like a lot of people don't read not the people listening to this but you know have yeah. you about that? well i think we need i think we need to use all mechanisms of storytelling i think the way that we are is what are we as a species what are we as like an animal we're storytellers Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was verbal before it was written. It was, you know, and now we have all these different mechanisms for doing it. Absolutely. Because it's not, it's not going to be a dumpster fire, right? Like there's such love and adventure. Like, you know, I got to live in a church and I remember watching Harry Potter when he went to live at Hogwarts and like how, you know, cold and ethereal it all was. And I immediately thought, first of all, he's a foster kid, kinship foster care. I was like, yeah, foster kids. But I also thought, gosh, I know what it's like to live in these big drafty buildings with nooks and crannies that are just bizarre. And, you know, I think there's adventures and joy. You know, we talk about joy, not just trauma and violence. I had the most amazing foster parents, Holly and Steve. Like, there is so much love. And who doesn't want to watch a movie about love? Like, I think there's big feels in this. So I'm hoping it does become something. And I'm trying, you know, uh, I've talked to a few folks who are like, oh, no one wants to read a book about child abuse. I'm like, this is not a book about child abuse. It's a book about hope. It's a book about love and the imperfect country we are and people and how we try and be better at it. So I'm hoping 
I'm working on it. Maybe someone listening wants to <laughs> make a movie. Call me. <laughs> be glad to work with you. <laughs> you the 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 part about your mother converting you to Judaism and the way in which Oof. you do that. Are you Jewish now? Oh, do gosh. you identify as Jewish? <laughs> Just wondering. Yeah, you know, I I am ethnically Jewish. I learned that through doing a DNA test. But I am religious. I just don't think anyone's cornered the market on God. My philosophy and religious belief is that God wants us to be good to each other and the planet. And that's the altar where I worship. And I, I enjoy the traditions and faiths. Not only was I converted to Judaism, most of the foster homes I was in, with one exception, maybe two, converted me to their religion. So I would just kind of like constantly cycle through. And I, I kind of joke and sometimes when I speak to church groups and I, met, I like to say I met God through food. And this is what I mean by that. I used to go to religious institutions. They had free food and you'd have to get a little proselytized, which is fine by me, but then they would feed you. And it was really good food sometimes. And sometimes it was not. And now I'm homeless and starving. So like I ate the food, but I used to think when I was young, I was like, clearly this religion and God are not getting along because their food is so awful and God would not let them have terrible food. And then I discovered Black Baptists who had delicious food. And I thought, oh gosh, these people are in touch with their God. And then I went to a Unitarian church and it was the first time I had Indian food, Unitarian Universalists. And it was like chef's kiss, flavor and complexity. And I'm, I'm today, I'm a vegetarian. I wasn't then, but I sort of am innately a vegetarian. I just don't like animal cruelty. And I had never had flavor like that before. And I don't know how old I was because I, I don't know how old I was for much of my life. But I was like, these people have a direct line to God. Uh, <laughs> but going through foster care, you know, they would convert me. And it was not as traumatic as the one in the book, but it just taught me that the people that preach the loudest are often the least living up to the values they purport to stand for. So I, I try to live my life according to my values. I don't try and convert anybody. And I just try to live a meaningful life of, uh, I enjoy my life, but like the part that I enjoy most is when I'm doing these things. And that's why I wrote the book. You know, how can I use my story to, I like to, it's so funny because I cyber stalked you before I knew we had a connection. Oh, yeah. when I was thinking about, yeah, because they're, they're like, you have to reach moms. And I'm like, doot, 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 doot. Uh, and you're like, because the more I talk to folks throughout my life before the book, they're like, you need just an army of moms behind you because this is like your your demo. Like these are the and I. The more I've talked to people around the country, the more I'm like, yes, I do. Because I think moms and and are just inherently more empathetic because you have to be. You know, I have a foster son. That's my foster son. Oh, he's old. I mean, he he graduated college. Yeah. Right? Oh my gosh. Right. He's in, he's in grad school. Yeah, he came older. Oh but uh, you know, bringing having he changed me. You know, he changed me. He made me a different human, much more aware, painful, love. Like I just, he's the most important thing I've ever done and opened up my heart, opened up parts of my heart even though we're closed. And so I think that feeling uh, that we have as parents is so profound. And that's what I hope this thing lights the fire. We can do this. We can change. We can love. We can share the love that we have for our own family with the community we have community. It's called the country. Like we can do this in our cities, in our towns. We can change it. Do you know, I learned a fact of the day, which 
I have to verify, but I believe it's true. Not a single member of the school board where I live has a kid in school. We have to get hyper-local. We have to figure out what we can do in our communities so that people like my son, who grew up in foster care with me as well, has a different outcome. We can share the love we have for our own kids with, with other people and each other. Amazing. I have a bazillion more things to talk to you about, but <laughs> I don't want to go on too long or no one will listen. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story and for just being the beautiful human being that you are. It's really inspiring and amazing. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 